Hi everyone, welcome to SAMA. SAMA stands for Spooky Ask Me Anything, where we have an expert come on board to talk about the chosen subject. Today we have Jason Ringus to talk to us about Royal Rife again. He's going to talk about um, his equipment, his microscopes and more. More is quite a broad subject title, so feel free to ask any questions you like about the work that Royal Rife did during his time. Hi Jason, welcome, welcome back. How you doing, John? Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. A little bit jet lagged. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier about my um, inability to sleep um, last night. I'm still in Poland time. Yeah. Um, Pol Poland's a fantastic country. When we went there, it was just we were expecting cold and snow, and we got um, uh, 28 degree temperatures pretty much every day we were there. So that sort of blew away every sort of preconception we had on the place hmm. um, go there if you can <laughs> it's a really lovely place they've got oceans they've got oh, they've got everything but um, anyway welcome, welcome back Jason um, now today's subject is uh, Royal Rife um, his microscopes and his uh, equipment the various projects that he um, did during his lifetime um, we've got some pre-arranged questions to get us get the summer started um, the first question that this um, person was asked was, um, I really must have changed, I must have a larger font of these questions. But what was the magnification, Jason, of the Rife microscope? I've, I've heard a lot about it and I've heard that it's very, very powerful. Yes, well, the different versions of the Rife microscope had different maximum magnifications. The largest, which was the universal microscope, the number three, that had a maximum magnification of about 31,000 times and Rife had said that they had boosted it up up to I think 50 or 60,000 times the other microscopes they had uh, less the I think the number two the number four and then uh, had up to 17,000 maximum magnification and I think the number five had a maximum of 15,000 and the first microscope the number one had a maximum of 12,000, although that was not a prismatic uh, microscope. That was his first one where he had the, the barrel of the microscope filled with the glycerin rather than the, the prism system that he had went to after that. That's um, so up to 70, 71,000. Um, you're saying the first one is 15,000. Do modern microscopes um, Magnified 15,000? No, no. The first one actually was 12,000. Sorry, 12,000. The, uh, the, the average microscope is around, usually they work at 1,000 times, maybe 1,500. Sometimes they can boost them, maybe 2,000 times magnification because the general rule of thumb is uh, 1,000 times the numerical aperture of the objective. So if you're using a top-of-the-line objective 100x with a numerical aperture of 1.4, then as the general rule of thumb is you would go to, say, 1,400. Usually they'll boost it maybe 1,600 times. Okay. I, there's quite a few USB microscopes which, are, which can be purchased quite cheaply. Um, they go to, I guess, around 1,000 or 
maybe they can boast more with digital magnification. Are those microscopes any use for, um, for, for magnifying uh, cells? Yeah, they can be useful for some, some basic, basic work. If you're doing research level work, then obviously not, because it's not just a question of magnification. You have to also have the resolution as well. Um, so in, in theory, you can magnify as much as you want, but that doesn't mean you're going to see anything extra. So that's, that's actually, there's, there's three legs to, to forming a good microscope image. You have to have magnification. You have to have lateral resolution, which is the ability to distinguish two points side by side as individual points rather than having them blurred into one and then you have to have contrast so if you're missing any one of those legs um, it's not going to work out uh, as an example say you have an electron microscope and you're looking at a virus but you're only magnifying 40 times well it's an electron microscope that has resolution but without that extra magnification you're not going to see it so or you could have uh, magnification and resolution, but if you have no contrast, it'll be like looking through a glass window. So all three factors are important to seeing, uh, seeing an organism or anything else under the microscope. And Royal Rife's microscopes, they were very high resolution as well as high magnification, weren't they? Absolutely. Um, the uh, the 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 so-called BX virus, as he uh, as he called it, has been calculated to be 50 nanometers by 66 nanometers. Um, the late Professor Hubbard did some calculations on the the tetanus spore, and he claimed that it was actually showing 44 angstrom resolution. Uh, as a matter of fact, when he showed some uh, micrographs from the universal microscope to uh, to a colleague. Uh, the the colleague thought uh, they were nothing special; that they were electron micrographs. And then when he told them that they were made with a light microscope, and he immediately uh, claimed, "Oh, this is fraudulent," because he couldn't believe that a light microscope would produce that kind of resolution. But the 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 fact of the matter is, is that electron microscopes didn't have the capability that's shown in those micrographs at the time that they were taken in the in the 1930s it or the the electron microscope advanced in ability i think later in the 1950s that's astounding so he was way ahead of his time then wasn't he with what he what he had built well absolutely uh you know the the things that it could show back then um, there are my, there are techniques nowadays that uh, that can uh, can show high resolution, but back then there was essentially there was nothing that could match it. Right. So, how did Royal Rife perform this magic? You threw two technical terms at me. You threw glycerine and you threw prisms. If you can explain in more detail, please. Well, whenever light transfers from one medium to another, the rays refract, right? And so 
he was trying to keep control of the light rays because when the rays cross, they interfere with each other and cause destructive interference, and that destroys the resolution. And that is actually what the, the, the whole basis of what he was trying to do was control the light rays so that the resolution that's at the object is, doesn't degrade by the time it gets to the eye point. Okay. I didn't actually realize when, so when two light beams intersect, they interfere with each other so that the result, when they come out the other side, they've changed. Is that yes. what you well, mean? Yes, actually, uh, if, you, uh, if you know about the, the phase contrast microscope, they actually intentionally use that interference. Uh, they, they shift the phase of the light rays to, to produce contrast. But that's a controlled kind of, uh, kind of thing. Whereas with a regular microscope, where, where you don't have any real control over the light rays, you know, that, mm. that is, you know, Rife said that, you know, the, the skeptics, they say that, uh, that, you know, they quote the textbooks about uh, resolution and all this kind of thing, as if Rife wasn't aware of it, right? He says, but this introduces other methods. And just like mm. modern microscopes, such as the, uh, the near-field opt optical microscope, there's a few other modern techniques that they use different methods and they surpass the the so-called theoretical limits of resolution and rife was essentially doing the same thing right now why what was the function of glycerin in the microscopes well just so that uh so that the the light as it's going from the the glass in the uh, objectives to the eyepiece so that the the they wouldn't refract as much right instead of going into air it just the uh, the refractive index of the glycerin closely matched the uh the the, the glass objectives okay so it's uh, less refraction between the different surfaces yes, if it wasn't I, I, don't, I don't even think he was the only one to ever do that there may have been others that did something similar right so where did royal rife learn how to do this was, um, we didn't. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, it's I I I think there is um, uh, some people that have done some research. I think there is ideas in the textbooks of the time that obvi obviously he was uh, he was very well informed about these matters. Um, so I'm sure that he got ideas uh, through his studies, and um, you know having his mechanical. Uh, uh, fabrication capabilities it just uh, came, all came together because he had the full workshop facilities didn't he so he had the, the lathe and other machining equipment yes he was completely equipped to fabricate pretty much any kind of uh, uh, equipment that he wanted um, has anyone have any of his microscopes, working microscopes, survived? Um, as we mentioned last time, there some of the microscopes still exist, but none of them are operational. I had heard that there was some effort to get the universal microscope back in working operation, but I've uh, I haven't heard uh, what the status of that is. Mm. 
Has, has anyone tried to copy his microsco microscopes? Actually, um, I just recently learned that uh, if I understand correctly, uh, Stan Truman and Eric Rowley have essentially recreated the Rife microscope and have uh, been awarded patent protection. Um, I don't know if they're using exactly the techniques, but from what little I read in the patents, um, it sounds, sounds like the Rife microscope. So that, uh, I just learned that recently uh, because I haven't been in touch with uh, Stan in several years. So I didn't, uh, I haven't heard what, what the status was because he was working on that for years. But uh, it appears that they have uh, succeeded in, in essence, replicating the Rife microscope. If the microscope was, is a copy of the original Royal Rife microscope, it wouldn't be having a, it wouldn't be able to have a patent. So they must have modified it in some way. Well, the Rife microscope was never patented itself. And um, so, yeah, I don't know uh, how that, uh, how that all works out. And I would imagine that even if it was patented, uh, the patents would have expired, but I think that they may have done, done something, uh, something a little differently. I'm not sure. Um, but, in principle, they did uh, in the in one of the patents. I think they they showed some images of uh, fifty nanometer uh, uh, colloidal gold particles. So yes. that's the resolution that we're looking for. So um, it looks like they've done it. it. It certainly seems like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Royal Rife was doing the microscopes quite early. In this time, wasn't he? When he was quite young. Yes. And well, the, the, I, I uh, believe that he used. Go ahead. I believe that he used the microscopes for his subsequent frequency work. Yes, the uh, the original microscope, uh, the number one, he had built uh, in the nineteen twenties, um, and uh, because the standard research microscopes couldn't uh, resolve what he was, uh, he was looking to resolve. And uh, so that's why he, uh, because he said, he said, I was up against a stone wall. He goes, I couldn't go any farther with the standard research microscopes. And that's why he, uh, you know, out of necessity had to, had to build his own microscope. He wasn't one to wait around and ask other people to do things, was he? He sort of got down and did the work himself. Well, you know, most, the vast majority of people will quote you the textbook and say that it's impossible. So, you know, the, the people that say it's impossible shouldn't get in the way of the people doing it. <laughs> That's right. The, the impossible usually is possible. It just takes a bit, a bit more time. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> now, um, the, the questions then went on to harmonics. Um, they weren't mincing words. The first question being, what are harmonics? I guess maybe an introduction on, um, yeah. Well, 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 harmonics are just merely multiples of a given frequency. So say you have a frequency of 100 hertz. So then the second harmonic would be 200. The third harmonic would be 300 hertz and so on down the line. And as they go, they diminish in intensity. Um, yeah, that's just the, the, the basic uh, idea of harmonics. Right. There's a 
bit of a disparity between different um, countries. Engineers in one country are taught that like 200 is the first harmonic, the first one being the fundamental. Well, no, and, my, uh, 300. Yeah. yeah, my understanding is that the fundamental is called the first harmonic. So there's, yes. in, in essence, there's no such thing as a first harmonic because it's the fundamental. And so the, down the line, it starts with the second and goes on from there. Okay. Now the word harmonic appears very um, often in the Royal Rife literature. And for good or for, good or for bad, you know, it's been used for many different purposes. Mm -hmm. And um, this was one of the reasons, I guess, why I wasn't sleeping too well last night, just thinking through several issues. Uh, um, why do people use harmonics with their equipment? Well, because uh, probably to get around the limitations of the particular equipment they're using. Uh, I mean, 20, 20 years ago at the very first Rife conference on, in uh, Vancouver Island, you know, um, they were talking about harmonics back then. And uh, me, I just said, well, if it's a harmonic, why not just use that frequency directly? And uh, I still say the same thing today. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it, seems, it seems like fundamentally the, the, the reason for using harmonics is to circumvent the limitations of the particular machine. Um, it seems like a lot of the discussion about harmonics is almost, I get the impression that they're trying to avoid doing the grunt work of actually hunting for actual MORs. So they just want to splatter the spectrum with harmonics and then hope that uh, they'll hit, uh, hit a frequency uh, in, in that harmonic spectrum. That, that, mm, do you think harmonics can be used for um, decreasing the time it takes to find an MOR, which is the fundamental? Perhaps well, you can... If we're, if we're talking about rife research, my opinion, harmonics are a big red herring. Um, you know, there's endless discussion on harmonics and that, you know, if you just use this audio frequency with this carrier wave and pick out this harmonic sideband or, or heterodyne these frequencies and, you know, choose that harmonic or, you know, or use this subharmonic or it's, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, why not just hunt and find the correct, correct MOR, verify it, and use it? I mean, that's Rife would never have intentionally used a harmonic or a subharmonic. If he had known that one of his frequencies was not the true frequency and he found the true frequency, then he would just use that one. And he even said it. He said if we had to, he, he speculated. He said, it's possible that some of the frequencies I found may be harmonics. And he was referring to subharmonics. He says, if we had the true frequency, it would work better because there'd be more power in it. And uh, so my position is, why not uh, hunt for the, uh, the fundamental? Okay. Uh, to the non-technical people watching this video, um, can you explain how harmonics are created? Um, 
any the only waveform to my understanding that doesn't have harmonics is a pure sine wave so you know the the smooth flowing sine wave if it's pure if it's pure then it doesn't have harmonics even a little bit of distortion of that sine wave right away you get some harmonics all other types of uh, waves such as a square wave according to theory it's composed uh, of an infinite series of uh, of harmonics with the fundamental and that's how you get the square shape so any kind of uh, uh, distorted waveform of any type will have harmonics so it sounds like harmonics are easy to get but it's harder to not have them <laughs> yes uh, I don't think it's necessarily uh, a big deal to have some harmonics in uh, in a waveform but the question is that if you are trying to uh, produce the so-called rife effect with harmonics, then I say, well, why not just use, it, use the fundamental? Because I don't think very many people uh, appreciate the, the logarithmic scale. When they do uh, spectrum analysis of waveforms and they point to these harmonics and everything, I don't think they appreciate just how little power there is in those harmonics. It looks like it's, it's, uh, it's a big issue. And in radio communications, um, uh, it's important to suppress harmonics because when the receiver gets it, it has amplifiers in it and it's going to amplify those uh, noisy harmonics. So, mm. so that's a problem there. But in rife research, if you're trying to project power to a target, certain bacteria, and dissipate power in that target, harmonics, uh, I don't think, are the way to do it. Right. We did touch on this in the uh, previous summer that we had maybe two or three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And um, it's true where, um, I guess it, it helps boost sales. We can see this you know, broad spectrum of power spread across a broad area. Yeah. But um, as Jason says, that, that if you view the same graph using a linear scale instead of a logarithmic scale, you'll see that anything out from the center, which is the fundamental, or the first yeah. harmonic. Because <laughs> the, the, the whole idea of the logarithmic scale is so that you can show on the same graph very weak signals with very uh, uh, intense signals. But like you said, if you just click the button and switch to a linear scale, all that so-called uh, you know harmonic spectrum that looks like a, all there's a lot of power there that all disappears. Right, and so the harmonics haven't got the power to do the job necessarily. No, like uh, let's uh, use an example for instance. Um, uh, Jim Bear did uh, a spectrum analysis uh, on his device. And he posted some uh, spectrograms, uh, the the way the uh, not the waveforms, the spectrums, and he showed the uh, the fundamental uh, carrier and then the the two primary sidebands, and they were twenty decibels down. the 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 first sidebands were twenty decibels down. Now, twenty decibels down. If the just say the uh, the carrier was a hundred watts, twenty yep. decibels down from. Uh, from uh, from 100 watts is one watt, and then all the rest of the uh, uh, harmonics were 50 or 60 decibels down. 
well, that's, that's just noise. That's in the noise floor. So, and the same thing with all the other spectrographs that uh, Jeff Garf has done and even Anthony's, even though his was full of uh, spectral leakage and uh, aliasing. But um, if you look at, if you just graph, because usually it's uh, scaled in uh, 10 decibels per division. So you can see right on those spectrographs, 20, 30, 40 decibels down. Well, there's no power there. No. That's right. Um, so most of the um, powers going in the frequencies which aren't being used, they're not, they're not anywhere near the frequency that you want. And light and noise <laughs> and heat. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then I suppose yeah. we have to ask the question, what is the minimum power level to, as Rife said, do the business? Now, if you can do the business with a harmonic that's 30 decibels down, so it's got, say, one milliwatt of power, well, why not build a frequency generator of one milliwatt and use it as a fundamental? And that way you avoid all that problem with potential interference or anything like that. It'd be much safer as well. Um, now, you threw one idea at me just recently, and I've built this into the next version of Spooky. You're talking about having a harmonic supporting a fundamental. So you might have one frequency, one 512th um, of the fundamental. So they're both simultaneously being um, sent to the, to the yeah. transmission device, be it plasma or whatever. Well, this is actually in the, in the theoretical, hypothetical stage. But uh, Jim Armstrong, who is one of the few true Rife researchers, he came up with this idea and did some uh, computer simulations and uh, what he had done is he, uh, he modeled, say, the bacteria as a resonant circuit. And he chose components so that it would resonate in the range of just, say, 400, 416 kilohertz. So then he started testing different signals against that to see what kind of power transfer you would get. So when you hit it with its resonant frequency, 416 kilohertz, you get a response in the target uh, just a little bit reduced. So if you feed a, a signal, say 800 volts peak to peak, I think it responded with the certain parameters that he input, it responded at I think 600 volts. So then what he did is he took an audio frequency, which was a harmonic, subharmonic of the carrier and as a gating frequency. And he fed that in and it actually, the target responded with, I think, like 1300, uh, 1300 volts peak to peak. So it actually, it looks like the, the harmonically related audio frequency was pumping more energy into the target. So then what he did is, okay, so now let's take a, keep that audio frequency, but change the carrier, and right away the resonance was destroyed. So there was no resonance. So then he uh, tried, okay, put back the, uh, the resonant carrier, but put a non-harmonic uh, gating frequency, and the resonance was destroyed as well. So it seems at, at the very least, 
um, for to, to do the business for, for MOR research, you either have to use a straight carrier or if you're gonna modulate or gate, uh, gate that carrier, it has to be a, harmonic, uh, a harmonically related uh, audio frequency of that. Um, right. So uh, this is all in the works right now. Uh, uh, Jim is working on a circuit to, uh, to, test, uh, to test this out. And um, I'm, I'm kind of excited about it because it, it all makes sense, uh, at least on paper. Now it needs to be tested on, uh, tested on uh, actual bacteria. Um, yes. I've, um, as I mentioned, I've, I've written a preset with all the parameters set and a new waveform to provide a 512th of the fundamental. And I can, I can tell you, Jason, that something definitely happens. Yeah. <laughs> it changes um, Spooky Central quite, quite a lot. It's quite an improvement on previous presets which I've written. So yeah. I, I owe you a thank you for this. <laughs> well, yeah, you, owe Jim more effective. Jim, you owe Jim Armstrong a thank you because it's all his baby. He just, uh, you know, uh, shared, shared that with me. And, uh, you know, I, I had asked him if he wanted me to pass the paper around. And he said, absolutely. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, credit under, for that idea. Credit goes completely to Jim Armstrong. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a keeper. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, what, what I think the gating is good for is um, <clears throat> plasma, which you know, when plasma is not ionized, it means a striking voltage, which is a bit of a spike. Yeah. And I think that's beneficial for um, uh, for treatment. Yes, and I think also the the audio idea, history. the idea with the uh, with the uh, the audio gating frequencies is also to help deionize the plasma between pulses. <clears throat> so I think that's also uh, also a fact. Well, as I was saying earlier, um, the 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 five hundred and twelve divisor it doesn't have to be divided by five twelve. It could be an, another divisor. It just has to be a harmonic multiple of the, of the carrier, and you have to have the resonant frequency of the target. Um, and then, uh, as we were saying about the, the audio frequencies, it appears that the, one of the big benefits is it helps when you have it pulsed and cut up into little snippets like that, that helps deionize the plasma between pulses. And, uh, so it produces more like of a like of an impulse effect, um, right? Than a continuous yeah, than a continuous kind of a effect. The um, I chose five hundred and twelve, Jason, because it brings it close to a supposed audio um, frequency that was used by your Royal Rifle of around three thousand three hundred hertz, and yeah. running at one six zero four brings it in that in that range. Um, yeah. And also 512 is a nice, you know, it's half of 1024, which is the number of data points within the waveform of Spooky. So that's worked yeah. out quite nicely for two good reasons. Yeah, and uh, this is all still experimental and, uh, you know, it needs to be tried out. That's all. Try it out but, and see how it works. And I, it could even be beneficial for uh, the, the whole uh, uh, harmonic audio 
can be beneficial for the fixed carrier systems as well. So if they just measure their carrier wave and then, uh, and then divide it down and then use, use frequencies that are exact uh, divisors of, of the carrier. Because here's another observation that has been made with the, the beam ray AZ58 style of system. Uh, because it's like an unstable carrier because of the low Q tank circuit, mm. the carrier actually shifts and locks on to the nearest multiple of the audio frequency. Um, so it actually, the, the beam ray type of system is actually already trying to do that, uh, that sort of a thing. Was there any capacitive coupling between the tube and the patient? With his with that type of equipment well from from what I understand uh, uh, if you bring your hand or any object uh, it shifts uh, shifts the carrier different lead lengths to the plasma tube um, objects uh, people that sort of thing all of that shifts the carrier a little bit uh, so that brings into question the the uh, the hypotheses about um, you know, harmonics and that sort of thing, if the carrier is shifting and randomly, like, I mean, say it shifted a little bit different for each patient, then how are you going to calculate harmonics, you know, without, and they didn't have spectrum analyzers back then. Um, so there's some issues with the, and, and that's why it's better to just run the fundamental because you know what right. you're running. Um, mm. Yeah. How did Royal Rife know if he was applying a fundamental or a subharmonic of the fundamental? Yeah, he didn't, um, and that's why that's why he speculated that it was certainly possible that some of the frequencies he found were subharmonics. Uh, but if he knew absolutely, then he would have just used the fundamental, right? Because he he said. Yeah. He said, none of the frequencies that I've found so far are in the uh, ultra short range. We can, if, if we take that at face value, then that would imply that he tested the ultra short range of frequencies. Um, or he could have just been making a general statement. But uh, when, when, he, when Reif mentioned harmonics and that some of his frequencies might have been harmonics, he wasn't stating that as a, as a statement of fact. He was just, uh, it was a, st a statement of speculation that it was certainly possible that that would have, could have been the case. Um, yeah. Okay. Mm. The, um, I wanted to talk a bit about plasma uh, tubes as, a, um, as an antennae. Um, now, Henry Siner, who was the assistant of Royal Rife, um, he passed a comment, it was just a, a comment, where you could use a normal radio transmitter for the frequencies rather than going through all the, jumping through all the loops of matching characteristics and the circuitry involved in driving a plasma tube. Um, do you think, and Royal Rife said, you know, that's a great idea, um, but do you think that would work if you use a normal radio transmitter well that um, the only real way would be to test it um, you know if you think about it 
if that was the case, then why aren't we all cured with all the radio transmitters that we're surrounded by with the modern technology? And, you know, there's frequencies. You have AM radio transmitters all over the place. You have shortwave radio transmitters. You know, you have Wi-Fi transmitters. You have transmitters all over the place. As a matter of fact, a lot of people get actually sick from, uh, from all these, uh, you know, electromagnetic waves that are... Uh, you know, saturate the, the environment. Um, so I suppose in, in theory, it, uh, it could be possible. Um, as we mentioned, uh, I think last time, um, diathermy uses some uh, insulated, uh, insulated pads where they just, you know, there's a, they call them condenser pads. So you have an electric field going from one pad to the other and they have different spacing and, uh, you know, when, I have a few diathermy machines here. You just, you know, fold up a few towels to get a different, uh, different spacing, and then the field goes through the target area and heats it up. Um, you know, you could possibly do the same thing with, uh, with bacteria as well. Okay, but um, Royal Rife chose plasma tubes, and um, I, I, I've been, always been wondering why he chose something that's so hard to drive. Um, if you're putting the same signal into a piece of wire, whether the effect would be the same. But I came to realize that plasma tubes are, um, okay, they've got an electric field and a magnetic field, but they have other fields as well. And those other fields are emissive fields. They don't absorb. They only go in one direction. Yes, well, they, uh, if, you, if you research waves in plasmas, there's all kinds of waves that... Uh, that uh, can be produced. They have electromagnetic waves of different types and they have uh, electrostatic waves of different types. And now I don't know what of, of those waves can actually extend outside of the glass envelope of the plasma tube, but uh, you know, there's even uh, uh, ultrasound just straight ultrasound that can, it could be an ultrasonic transducer as well. But there's, um, there's a lot of different things that could be going on there um, that makes it certainly uh, an interesting subject of, uh, of study. Um, yeah, but uh, as I mentioned last time, he, his, initial, his initial concept was based upon x-ray. So he was... And that's why he used x-ray tubes. So he didn't want to produce x-rays, he wanted to, but he wanted to produce some sort of ray. And, um, and that was conceptually where he was coming from. So now, whether you actually need the plasma tube, I think that uh, that still needs to be determined once and for all. Right. Uh, um, now, many people today are using sine waves for driving the plasma tubes, which is the carrier, and they're modulating above that. Um, for many of the fields, the plasma tube will be doubling the frequency because it's emitting both in the positive part of the cycle and the negative part of the cycle. But the, the resultant will be like a bunny hop of the field. And it won't be, um, I, I'll, uh, would that be conducive to um, inducing resonance, do you think, in a, in, a, um, in a cell? 
Well, if you don't have the resonant frequency, you're not going to get resonance. So, you know, uh, I think that the, the fixed carrier systems work on a, di on a fundamentally different pr principle. I think okay. as, a, as, a, as a general statement, I try to distinguish between what I call physiologic frequency therapy and germicidal or MOR frequency therapy. So um, you could, you know, have, have a, uh, an overlap, you know, in some cases, but uh, that's why in vitro uh, research is so important because you could be getting effects on a physiologic level that may even cause the destruction of microorganisms, but that's not necessarily through the same mechanism as what Rife was doing. Because it's just, for instance, say you have a machine that is therapeutically effective. You get clinical results and everybody is happy. But then you test it under the microscope and it doesn't destroy the microorganisms. Well, then that's evidence that it's something different than what Rife was doing because Rife started in the laboratory and then went on to in vivo research with animals and humans. If he had never got any results under the microscope, he wouldn't have been able to proceed further. So this, it, at least uh, at this juncture, it appears that, uh, that there's, a, there's something fundamentally different about what Rife was doing and what we're generally doing with our frequency machines today. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're bad. That um, doesn't mean they don't work. It's just something different. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. Um, right. I've always been baffled at the seeming obsession with people in uh, calling everything that uses frequencies a uh, rife machine. Uh, you know, it's okay to not be rife, right? The only time it's not okay <laughs> is when you're calling it rife and it's not rife. You know, it's okay if it's not a rife machine. If it works, it works. It stands on its own merits. Um, but you can always jump on a bandwagon, I guess. That in sort of, um... Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, what, yeah. What can you say? Yeah. Um, now, Royal Rife's tubes. I know that he used quite a different combination of tubes. Did he ever use a straight tube? Not to my knowledge. His tubes had in uh, internal electrodes. Um, yeah, they they were modeled modeled. Uh, some were actual X-ray tubes. And then the other ones that were custom fabricated were modeled on that, that pattern with the internal electrodes and the, the 45 degree target uh, as well. With the tubes, which have got the 45, 45 degree um, target and one half of the cycle, the plasma will hit the target and then bounce off and the other side of the cycle, it won't be emitting so strongly, would it? Well, if, if in fact there is some sort of uh, directional effect being produced by that target, well then, you know, if when, they, when it reverses polarity and then strikes the, uh, the perpendicular target, then you're just going to get a scattering effect. Whereas the, when it hits the angle target, you'll get a, like a deflection effect and, you know, sort of shoot out towards the target. 
So in that configuration, the plasma tube won't be a frequency doubler then. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure if, uh, if it actually is doubling the frequency. I mean, that's what they say it's, it's doing, you know, whether it's acting as a diode. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I mean, the, you know, we, we simply don't know even if the whole concept is correct that it's act, acting as a, as a partially directional an, antenna. Some people have said there does seem to be something, uh, something different going, but other people are saying that you get the same kind of, uh, you know, electric field effect off the wires feeding to the plasma tube. So, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, taking those kinds of measurements. I don't think it's a, a trivial matter. Mm. The, um, it is true. A lot of electrical noise does come off the, um, the high tension leads going to the tube. Um, and of course the tube introduces its own harmonics um, with its waveform distortion. Yeah, that's why um, it's also important um, to use, uh, to try and use the leads um, the way that they uh, shortwave that where they use the ladder line. They try to keep them as, as parallel as possible so that the, the fields will interact and, you know, try and cancel each other out. Um, you know, uh, I think that that's important to, uh, to follow that kind of pattern. That's right. The, um, the, the, the leads going through the tube, um, because the voltage is so high, it's basically a very long capacitor and it changes the characteristics of the tube. If the wires are touching, then the uh, capacitance gets increased and the waveform will change, the sharp edges will disappear and, well, mm -hmm. if there are any sharp edges, but the waveform does get distorted quite, quite, um, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is all, uh, you know, electronic and radio engineering. There's, uh, there's an enormous amount of information. And I think that, uh, people that build machines should make use of, uh, of the, the knowledge and information that exists so that, that the machines are built, uh, built properly, that they don't radiate, uh, you know, as unnecessarily, you know, that sort of thing. Let's mm. talk about the radiation side. A few Rife machines um, use 27 megahertz as the carrier because it's that, um, that frequency band is allowed for experimentation use. Um, but if we're trying to target a cell that responds to a different frequency, then harmonics have to be created from the carrier in the form of side bands or whatever you want to call it. But then it gets out from the, um, the allocated 27 megahertz um, space. So do you think the machines that use 27 megahertz as a carrier are effective? Uh, yes, they actually are. They, they are effective um, and they've been in use for a long time. And it, don't forget, it's not only uh, those machines, but most diathermy machines that also use to pulse di diathermy, they work in that range as well. And those have been used for decades. Um, so, but there's a fundamental different thing that we're looking for. I mean, you know, if you're talking about rife research, 
and you're trying to replicate the so-called Rife effect, then you have to use whatever frequency is going to do the business. It doesn't matter where the frequency is. You know, if it turned out that Rife's, uh, you know, AM range uh, frequencies were, were actually subharmonics, and then it turns out that, that the, the actual frequencies are a little bit higher, well, then those are the frequencies that should be used. If you need to use some sort of shielding or whatever else to, uh, to, to make sure that you're not overstepping the bounds, that's okay. The one good thing about 27 megahertz is that its allocated bandwidth is the widest. And so even if you're splattering an enormous amount, if you did get outside of the band, those the harmonics would be so weak that there would be no problem anyway. So, um, yeah, and usually, like, for instance, the Jim Bear system, it uses an antenna tuner, and that has a certain bandwidth as well that's going to, uh, you know, prevent, uh, prevent you know, ultra-wide band uh, harmonics from getting out of control. So, uh, but uh, those, yeah, those machines have been used for a long time now. I mean, uh, mm. and, and people have been getting results. I don't think people would use any machine for a particularly long period of time if there wasn't some positive results. And, um, you know, there's th those machines have been continued to, to be developed and improved and uh, efficacy is even better than they were back when it all started out. Right. What frequency did Royal Rife um, go up to in his experiments? The best information that we have is that the, the, he was actually using radial receivers as oscillators, as frequency generators. And they had a frequency, maximum frequency range of about two megahertz. Uh, now there's been endless speculation that the actual frequencies were higher up in harmonics and that sort of thing. But the frequency that, frequencies that he was feeding into the machine, into the plasma tube, were up to two megahertz. Okay. Um, did Philip Hoyland, the engineer that he hired to um, make his machines, to improve his machines, um, did he manage to take it any higher than two megahertz? Well, first, I, I'm not actually sure that Philip Hoyland was an engineer. Um, let's, uh, you know, that's just an aside, but uh, we always call him the engineer. Um, mm. And I suppose you could call him an engineer because he did design some of those those machines. But, okay. uh, but he ran a radio repair shop before he got involved with Rife. If he was a real engineer, I don't know if he would have been doing that line of work. So that's just a, a side point that, you know, you know, sometimes we, uh, we just take things at face value without, uh, you know, critically analyzing them. But anyway, back to the topic, uh, he was the one that developed the machines like the number four machine that, uh, that he built for Rife um, uh, went up to 22 megahertz. So, you know, we don't know how far they experimented in that range, uh, but it did have the capability to go up to 22 megahertz. Then the later beam ray machines uh, that, uh, that he had built had a so-called fixed carrier in the three, three to four megahertz range. 
Um, so they were, you know, higher than what Rife did uh, initially. Okay. So it's possible that Royal Rife was finding subharmonics. It is possible, and the, the frequencies, the true frequencies, the fundamentals, were higher than he could reach on his equipment. Well, that's certainly possible, but on the other hand, uh, there was frequency generators available at the time. There was no technological limitation for him using uh, frequency generators that, that could go higher than the, those uh, uh, Colin Kennedy machines. Um, so why did he use in, uh, use those uh, and you know stick to that range? We, we don't know. I, you know that's why this all needs to be tested out. Even if we knew absolutely that uh, you know that one frequency that Rife used was was the frequency, we still have to verify it today because we don't know if it's going to work today. Um, mm. So. Uh, yeah, you, it all has to be tested out. It doesn't matter if we had a, a master frequency list straight from Rife himself that's been preserved. It all still has to be tested and verified. Right, and scientifically. Mm -hmm. I guess with the, um, if the equipment being used to produce the frequencies are, are different, that may have an effect also on the frequencies that are being you know, it might need to be that for that particular device. This is the this is the sweet spot frequency uh, to produce well, the result. That's that is a certainly a possibility. I mean, Rife said uh, in, on in the court trial, he said we have a given wavelength which can be produced in different ways, but it should be the same no matter how it's produced. So, like a resonant frequency is a resonant frequency. It doesn't matter sure. what machine you use to, to generate it. Um, um, but, you know, it has, to be, it has to be confirmed. Right. Um, going back to 27 megahertz machines, which have got a carrier that's quite a bit higher than um, most other plasma machines about, uh, out there, um, which use around the three megahertz generally, um, Mark. Mm -hmm. um, they overmodulate the ones that I the ones that I know about. They overmodulate the carrier, so it's almost like a switching, a hard switching on and off of the carrier. Um, for a lot of um, you know, if you if you liken the resonance to a pendulum swinging, if you're applying a very high frequency in two directions to a pendulum, it's not going to move. But if it's unidirectional, even no matter how fast the carrier is, if it's being switched on and then off and then on at the frequency of resonance, then that would have a biological effect. And this is why I'm coming back to the, um, the plasma being an emissive um, device rather than truly AC, where it can only, the, 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 um, the field that's having the effect on the cell um, is only doing the pushing. It can't draw in again after the, um, you know, on the, on the other part of the cycle. Because I, I can't see myself how a 27 megahertz carrier could have an effect on an organism that's got a lower fundamental um, MOR. I'd be interested to know your comments on that. Well, see, we're also talking about physiologic effects and physiologic mechanisms. Uh, 
So even if, like we, we know that 27 megahertz diathermy machines, they have effects. They have pulse diathermy as well. They, they, yes. they, have, they have effects. And it could be some more generalized thermal effect. Uh, there, there could be, there, there's a, a lot of different things that could be going on um, as an explanation for wh why they get the clinical results that they do. Um, now, if we're talking strictly about resonating a targeted mi microorganism, um, we don't know. I mean, some, uh, some uh, uh, theories about the... Uh, the, the DNA in the bacteria that it's like a like a half wave dipole and that it's in the it's in the like microwave range and so that it's actually the 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 frequencies that is being produced by those machines it's actually the higher harmonics in the microwave range that are resonating it um, I don't know if that is correct or not there's there's so many different things that could be going on um, and that's why I think it's important to do in vitro research, especially, you know, when we're talking about rife, because when you're doing it in vitro, then you're completely eliminating all the physiologic mechanisms that could be happening to the human or animal body. Um, and that's why the, uh, the, the fundamental rife effect is, is something different uh, than what we seem to be getting with uh, the machines we use today. Okay, diathermy pads, are they AC or pulsed DC? That is actually like a radio, just a radio frequency electric field. Yeah, and uh, they have, um, the patient actually becomes part of the tuning. So they get sandwiched in between and then they have a, a tuning capacitor and then you just you just tune it to get the, the certain current flow that uh, that you want uh, through the circuit. Uh, yeah, the the ones the vintage ones that I have they're pretty crude machines, but they 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 do what you need them to do. Okay, so they, they I guess they must be AC then if the if the patient becomes part of the oh yeah capacitive. yeah, yeah okay. because you have to even um, you have to be careful because if you hit high voltage DC, you could kill someone if something goes wrong and they, they actually get, uh, you know, if the insulation uh, fails or something like that and you hit them with uh, 1,000, 1,500 volts uh, of DC, that could be problematic. Mm, it would be painful. <laughs> so the, uh, the diamond pads, are they quite, have they got quite good protection for uh, to safeguard people from electrocution? Yes, uh, really thick rubber, the ones that I've, uh, I've seen. There's another type called uh, sh uh, Schlieffake uh, pads, and they're round metallic discs, and then they're inside like a glass, uh, a glass envelope, and you can even adjust the distance. Um, I think those are higher efficiency than the, the rubber... Uh, the rubber coated uh, diathermy pads. Yeah, I've right. never, I've never actually uh, used uh, used those, but uh, they would be something interesting uh, to to try out. Were were these pads used before uh, plasma tubes were used? Do yes. They... Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, 
another uh, Rife researcher, Jim Peters, uh, when he first started out, uh, uh, he was using uh, just a modified uh, diathermy machine. So he just put a modulation circuit into it to run the, the different frequencies, and he was using the, uh, the insulated diathermy pads, and uh, very effective uh, for pain relief in uh, Lyme disease. Um, when he was using some of the higher frequencies, uh, it does seem to keep the infections at bay, but I remember the last time he told me that if you don't use it for a couple of weeks, uh, then it sort of comes back. So there's something still, you know, despite all the positive results that, uh, that they have had, uh, there seems to be something lingering in the background, just waiting for an opportunity to, to rear its ugly head again. Lyme, Lyme seems to be a, a tough beast. Uh, we had Sebastian Mercier on just two summers ago um, talk about his experience with Lyme and how he managed to overcome Lyme. But if he doesn't do regular maintenance, even now, um, it can, his symptoms can gradually return again. So um, let's hope that we can, we can find something to, um, to you know, totally overcome Lyme. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does, it, does, it does appear to be a, 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 a tough nut to crack, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, um, that's, that's um, all the questions gone through and all the things that I had in mind to discuss. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about, Jason, before we pull the plug? Um, no, I don't. Uh, not offhand. If any of the uh, viewers have any questions, we can certainly try to answer them. Um, sure. It's, um, we, we didn't get any questions um, from our online viewers, but um, maybe they're busy enjoying the summer sun and... <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe maybe we're answering the questions. You're answering the questions fully, and they don't need, you don't need to ask any more questions, which is always a good sign. Or maybe we're so boring that they clicked off. <laughs> <laughs> this what I love about you, Jason. You're so positive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, um, there are. Uh, I think. There's, there's plenty of research that needs to be done because here's, uh, I thought about this actually. Um, most people in the so-called rife community are rife consumers, not rife researchers. And that's okay because not everybody can be a rife researcher. Uh, you know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not that easy to, to do. I myself, I haven't, uh, I haven't done uh, work under the microscope uh, in, in many years. Um, uh, but we need to have more people actually doing work uh, under the microscope. I mean, right. the, the amount of energy that has been expended in endless debates, you know, such as the issue of harmonics. I mean, if a fraction of that was expended uh, actually hunting for MORs, I'm sure we'd have a few by now. You know, some that's verified rather than people just saying, well, you know, I felt this effect, therefore it works. Right? I mean, we need to, we need to follow up and, uh, and, and stick to Rife's methodology, you know, or else we'll never be sure. 
you know, like uh, way back in 1999, uh, the late Don Tunney, uh, we were talking at the Rife Conference and he said something to the effect, thanking me for keeping him honest in, uh, in saying that he doesn't have a Rife machine. And I said, well, you might have a Rife machine, we just don't know. Right. And that's the whole point of research. You know, there's there's a lot of machines out there that may qualify to be called a Rife machine, but we don't know because we don't have the confirmation. And that's what it's all about. And no amount of uh, discussion on harmonics and sidebands and, uh, and and all that is going to going to change the need for objective confirmation, which is laboratory experimentation there's no getting around that we've had what 70 years of arguing about harmonics and sidebands i think there's there's a few too many armchair researchers and not enough people actually doing hands-on we've had a question come in from freedom um freedom asks um about the mechanical drawings in measurements of the Rife microscopes, do we did any of Rife microscopes have plans, you know, drawings of the internals? There are some uh, some drawings. Uh, I think John Crane had had done uh, had done some drawings as well. I don't know um, how accurate uh, they all were. I have some some things about the 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 lenses but uh the, you know it's kind of hard uh to to make sense of it all like without having the the broader context you know see that that's another criticism that i have of rife is that he should have done a better job of uh preserving his legacy he could have published all of his information in a monograph you know after he had closed his lab down and retired he could have just focused on, okay, things didn't work out as planned. You know, I need to preserve this for uh, posterity. You know, he could have, on the audio interviews, he said that, um, he said that the prisms, they, the, the, the 90 degree prisms, he says they're not a true 90 degree prism. He says that'll be explained elsewhere. Well, where's the ex explanation elsewhere? You know, so... He could have published something, you know, putting out the, the, the information, you know, 100% so that somebody in the future, you know, uh, would be able to, to replicate his work. Um, he didn't do that. And he left it up, you know, he left his legacy to John Crane and John Crane simply wasn't qualified to carry the torch. I mean, we have to thank him for preserving what, what has been preserved, but you need somebody with a, a higher level of uh, qualification to to carry on where Rife left off. Why um, were his microscopes destroyed intentionally? You said there's no working microscopes now. We, you know, we 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 don't really know. I heard that one of them was actually either cannibalized or, or, or cut up, you know, they were trying to analyze it. So they cut it up or, 
I don't know how accurate that uh, that account is, but um, you know, maybe over time, uh, people they, they couldn't get it to work. They didn't know how to how to set it up, so maybe parts were were cannibalized for other things. Yeah, we 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 don't really know. Um, um, you know, the only way you would know is if a working model shows up someday, but I, I'm not going to hold my breath. No, it's been quite a long time. It's if the, a microscope of that caliber would need to be maintained, I assume, for to keep yeah. it functional. Yeah, and actually, if there are modern advancements uh, in microscope technology, that can do what we need to do, then um, then it ultimately becomes irrelevant. Sure, it'd be nice for nostalgic purposes to have a, 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 an original Rife microscope, but mm. our goal is to simply see these viruses and other other uh, ultra microscopic particles in the the living state, so that we can confirm whether the uh, frequencies are devitalizing them. So if right. you could do that, if uh, the new uh, uh, Stan Truman, what do they call it, the Truman Nanoscope, I think they call it, if that does the job, and if they put it out on the market at an affordable price, then people can buy that and, uh, and use it for research. Um, mm, that would certainly um, help. There the are some techniques where you may not be, uh, you might not need to use a microscope. For instance, uh, this one doctor friend of mine, uh, who's also, he's, he's into Rife and he's a, an infectious disease specialist, but he, uh, he's also into ham radio and he came up with this other idea, which kind of works almost hand in hand with uh, Jim Armstrong's idea to use a, uh, what's called a uh, grid dip oscillator to test for resonance on a sample of bacteria. So he said, you said you'll need maybe like a three or four gram pellet of the bacteria. So you'd have to culture maybe one or two liters of, uh, of culture and then you spin it down and wash it. You know, standard techniques that they always use with the phosphate buffered saline solution, wash it out and then spin it down so it's a nice, fresh, moist pellet. And then you can use that and test you know, with, the, with the grid dip oscillator to test for resonance. Um, if, if that works, I don't know if it works. It may not be sensitive enough. We, you know, these are, these are all just, uh, working ideas that, you know, at, at least have potential. But if you could take a test tube of bacteria and somehow put it through some kind of scanning device, find the resonant frequency, and then feed that into through your, uh, frequency instrument, maybe with a harmonically related gate frequency, well, that might be uh, the whole solution right there. Um, we don't know. You just have to try, the, try it out and see what happens. It's a, it's a brilliant idea, Jason. Um, can you explain to the non-technical viewers what a grid dip oscillator is and what it does? Well, so it's, a, it's an oscillator. And then they, uh, they have, I have a vintage one somewhere stashed away here, but they have these coils and they're used for, for detecting resonance in uh, coils and, uh, and tuned circuits, that, that sort of thing for, for radios. 
when you want to build a radio for, for testing components. Um, so then uh, this doctor friend, uh, he came up with the idea of using that to test for resonance. So my idea, a little bit of a refinement there, is to, to make the coil use the actual type of test tube you're going to use with it and use that as a form for the coil so that the coupling is as tight as possible. So you actually slide it into the coil and then you can scan with frequencies. And uh, there was an article in the 1959, I think, Popular Electronics uh, magazine where you could use your, uh, your uh, signal generator to make a, uh, a, a dip oscillator. So you could use a modern DT, DDS generator with digital control and, uh, and still get the same kind of effect. It's um, it's a brilliant idea. I really hope it works. Yeah, because of if, that's it's a big <laughs> it's a big if. It is a big if, but uh, like I said, if it works, and then uh, combine that with Jim Armstrong's idea of having the you have the resonant frequency and um, and the harmonically related gate frequency, uh, so that you're pumping like a a more intense field into the target. Um, another idea that I came up with is use that same kind of coil uh, for the dip oscillator, but use a spectrum analyzer with a uh, tracking generator. So that way you could scan the whole frequency range, and then if you get a dip, uh, then that's your resonant point, and then you could also uh, determine its minus 3, B, 3 dB bandwidth as well, because you're going to probably have some variability in the in the individual bacteria and so maybe you might have to uh, like scan through and like a narrow bandwidth to get them all um, those are just a few ideas but uh, you know it's it's a lot of work I'm very well aware that uh, talking about all this stuff is is a whole lot easier than actually doing it Yes, well, we've got projects underway which will possibly realise a lot of this, um, but it's taking a lot of time because it's it takes a long time to do the impossible. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like at the beginning, yeah. Yeah. we're we're two two years in one of our projects and still going strong, but we we've, we're now seeing the light now. So, so yeah, um, yeah. yeah it's, it's it's hard work. Yeah, I think, uh, like I uh, said last time, uh, this whole thing isn't beyond the reach. We know, you know, we're talking about resonance. As Rife said, you know, it's a coordinative resonance. So if that's the general idea, we all understand that, what that's all about. We understand, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. So now it's just a matter of going about and, like Rife said, he said, he said, hunt and try. That's all we could do, right? He had to work sometimes months, months to find a single frequency. My opinion, we should be able to do that much faster with modern technology. If some of these ideas that we've been discussing actually pan out, then it, uh, it's, then it just becomes a matter of getting access to the different types of microorganisms, right? Mm. So, yeah, that's uh, it's it's it just needs to be done, right? You know, we uh, gotta 
set aside the uh, the debates about harmonics and uh, hunt and try for some MORs. Mm. Yeah, real research. Um, sometimes I get the feeling that people are so so fixed in what how how, how Roy arrived at it, they're not willing to sort of think in broader terms and think well what we have now um the equipment that we have and the uh the new you know what's been learned between then and now um if we applied that to if we build on what royal life did and but but apply it in a different way the results may be even you know greater or more readily obtained that's so, certainly possible i mean uh jim peters had pointed out once uh maybe it was some kind of quirk in the type of uh, uh, circuits that were being used back then with vacuum tubes, that sort of thing. You know, that, that's certainly a possibility, but people have already had po some positive results uh, with modern type of frequency machines. Mm -hmm. So I, I would tend to think that there's just something fundamentally missing. We're either... You know, we're, you know, we're just, you know, just some little detail that I think we're missing, but we just have to try it out because the, the, the different configurations that might be possible are limited. There's only so many different things that Rife might have been, might've been doing back then. So right. if you try one configuration and it doesn't work, well, try a different configuration. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, um, that's right. You've just got to keep thinking, thinking of the best way. Like your suggestion before about using a, a, a harmonic that's related to a fundamental to support that frequency. Um, nothing's proven, but I've tried it, and it certainly seems to work very well. So um, well, it needs to be then, quite of course. Yeah, then we have to, in this context, we have to define what we mean by works works well okay now there's there's works in the sense of clinical efficacy you know positive clinical results but mm. then there's works in the the rife context meaning it devitalizes the bacteria in vitro that's right, right. so you know it's a good start that you get some clinical effects because you know people even though these machines aren't toys and they have to be uh, handled with respect, we generally consider them to be safe. They've been used for so many decades. Uh, the general idea is that they're safe. Some of the ways that are, they're being used today, I don't think is safe. Um, that's just my opinion, but um, as a general idea, they're, they're safe. So now it's a question of, doing some uh, some research to verify uh, MORs because if we can do it with one just one then we know that we've recovered the basic idea and then it's just a matter of further uh, further testing to find all the other frequencies that we need that's right so we need more powerful microscopes <laughs> well more people start well take a look at this one right here this is, uh, I used this one uh, in some experiments. Cheap, low cost microscope. It allows me, uh, uh, at the time, at the time I was uh, 
I was using uh, just common baker's yeast as a quick and dirty test sample, culturing it in, uh, in white grape juice on my coffee table. You know, just something to, uh, to, to have to put under the microscope to, to test frequencies with. Um, you don't really need a whole lot more than that. Obviously, they have, uh, you know, for a little bit more money, you can uh, get something better than that. You know, you, those USB uh, microscope cameras that you mentioned, maybe some of the better ones you could uh, make good use of uh, so that you don't have to strain your eyes looking through the eyepiece. Um, mm. And then you could hook up uh, video recording systems so that way you can just put a sample on there, scan through a range and videotape it, and then you can scan through the video to see if there was any effect. If you mm. found an effect, then you can go back and pinpoint where it was. That way you don't have to destroy your eyesight the way Rife did with his. Mm, yeah. Now, Royal Rife did use time-lapse photography, didn't he, for, his, for some of his work? Some, uh, some of the, uh, the work that he did was, uh, was time-lapse uh, in the lab film uh, that, that wasn't time-lapse. Uh, he just uh, showed, showed the sample under the microscope before and after. Um, yeah, so we have technology that's, you know, if, if Rife was working today, I mean, he would probably set a sample and just go take a tea break and uh, come back <laughs> and, uh, and see, what, see what happened. Right. So again, applying what's available now, the technology of today, to make things easier and possibly more precise. Absolutely. And like the frequency generators we have with digital control, because that's another thing with the harmonics and the, the frequency sweeps that we're doing. Because not only do you have to have the correct frequency, you have to have a sufficient amount of power, which is undetermined at this point, and you have to have a sufficient dwell time. If you sweep through, if you have a high power and, uh, and the right frequency, but you sweep through it so you're only uh, exposing it for one millisecond, well, that's probably not going to do anything. So you have to have all, all three of those factors. And now with, uh, you know, they had, uh, you know, frequency stability issues with uh, some of the machines back then. And so the, the doctors uh, came up with the idea of, you know, starting on one side of the dial and then slowly sweep through <clears throat> so that they could hit the frequency. Now they've taken that to an extreme where they're just scanning through the whole range. Uh, you know, I don't think that's the correct approach. You know, you might have to sweep through the individual frequencies that you have. So it's a little bit on each side, but to, to sweep through the entire spectrum in the hopes that you'll be uh, you're hitting and running it for four hours or, you know, overnight and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't think that's the, the correct approach when you're talking about MOR experimentation. Right. Uh, you know, maybe people are getting uh, clinical results that way. I don't know. Um, I do wonder whether the long-term uh, long effects uh, will be positive because, uh, you know, this is electromagnetic energy that you're exposing the body to. It's supposed to be like a treatment, not a continuous exposure around the clock. Mm. Mm. Yeah.
Yeah, there was even a report from one guy that worked for one of the manufacturers and uh, working on the machines uh, for, for so long a period of time, uh, I think he got, uh, he became uh, electrosensitive. You know, some, some sort of, uh, you know, neurological uh, damage, I'm not sure, but, you know, if you're, if you're working, uh, working around these machines at high power for, mm. for long periods of time, I don't think that's a good idea. Many people, of course, have got Wi-Fi routers next to their desk as they're tapping away at the ivories. I guess the same thing could apply to them where they could become oh, yeah. sensitive. Oh, there's a lot of people. There's been uh, reports of uh, students, uh, students getting ill uh, from the Wi-Fi in schools. Uh, uh, me, just as a, a precaution, I didn't have any health issues, but I just uh, told my internet provider to to turn the Wi-Fi off on the modem, and I just used the standard Cat5 cable. Works fine for me. Right. Do you have smart meters in your side of town? Yes. Yeah, we have them too. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, yeah, where is our meter? I think it's over there, down. So uh, it's it's 20, 30 feet away from me, uh, where I'm sitting right now. But uh, yeah, there's... Um, and then it, it also depends on the, the individual. Some people don't have a problem with it and other people that are more hypersensitive to that sort of thing, uh, they get debilitated. Mm. Yeah. The, um, evidently the signal that's emitted by those meters is quite strong because the, the reader destroys parts in his car and picks up the signal from, from quite a distance. So it is a true broadcasting device. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, all these uh, signals that we're being exposed to, I don't think it's, uh, it's a good thing. And so now you take a, essentially a radio transmitter <clears throat> and then you're going to run it at high power right uh, cl close, to, close to you for four, six, eight hours. Uh, I wonder about that. Uh, I, you mm. know, I... You know, I don't, uh, I don't treat any, uh, any people or anything like that, uh, but, you know, I, I would like to uh, see some kind of information as to, to how that works for the long term. Mm. Yeah, especially the more powerful machines, I suppose, yeah. the ones yeah. with the carrier. <laughs> well, I mean, you had yeah. Rife giving a three, three to five minute treatment, you know, twice a week. Okay, now say you have Lyme disease and you have more than one microorganism. So say you're doing 15-minute, half-hour treatment, you know, every couple of days. Now, that's totally different. Now you've got people that are doing two or three treatments a day, every day. Mm. You know, that, uh, that doesn't, that, as far as I'm concerned, that's, a, that's an indication that your machine isn't that effective. The more, you, the more you have to use the machine, the less effective it is, right? We need one, you, sorry, Jason. Yeah, if you're, uh, if, you, if you're killing off the microorganisms, because also, if you're killing microorganisms in your body, then all that debris is gonna serve as an antigen for to, to kind of uh, to, to tune up and charge up your immune system. So then your immune system might be able to, to, to get boosted to, to recognize those organisms and then 
you'll sort of get a double whammy where you're killing them on the one hand with the frequency machine, but then the immune system is fighting them harder as well. Um, but, uh, you know, running, running hours a day, like if you're killing the organisms, it should be in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't want to overdo it. Like, you know, sure, you could do, Rife could have done, say, a half-hour treatment and then just kill too much off, and then you might, uh, you, might uh, you know, injure the patient, right? Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right. Okay, well, we'll, we'll call this uh, Sabbath to an end. We've okay. overshot again. <laughs> okay. As always, it's lovely having you on board, Jason. Um, I've learned quite a bit, and I'm sure our viewers have as well. So okay. thank you for coming on. Okay. And um, thank you, everyone, for watching this uh, summer. Uh, okay. Summer is a weekly program, so we'll be on next week. Um, I believe we've got um, Clive DeCowell back on next week. Um, I'm not sure uh, what their precise um, topic will be. It's something on nutrition. So um, thank you for viewing, and um, goodbye. Okay. Cheers.